So, 1 Peter. This book is as relevant as ever, and part of why I was drawn to 1 Peter in the first place was because the context of 1 Peter was believers living in a very hostile society. And as you've heard me say, you've heard many others say, but as you can see with your own eyes, America is undergoing a transformation in front of us. Things that I never thought about even 20 years ago are reality now. And that transformation is not making America more godly or more Christian. In fact, it's making the simple truths of Scripture even more offensive to a culture that's largely thrown off any concept of God or accountability to Him. So when I was originally drawn to First Peter, in part, it was because he was talking to believers and teaching them how to live in the context of hostility. But even when I first started studying it, I think my focus was a little bit off. Because I had heard, and I've been taught, and, and it's not untrue, that First Peter is about persecution. But the more I study and the more I read the book, I realize that's not actually the lens through which I think we should look at this book. The issue is holiness. The issue is living holy as God is holy. So as Peter goes through in the opening chapter, he really is just encouraging believers who were living hard lives. He was reminding them of the preciousness of their salvation, of the hope they had in heaven, of the security of their salvation, because he knew he was about to ask them to do very, very difficult things. So his starting point for these believers, some of whom had already endured great hardship, was just to remind them, look, you have Christ. You have everything. But then as he gets into the heart of it, he's really just focusing on holiness. He wants them to be holy. So he encourages them truths they know, but then he lays out before them in chapter 1, verse 14, As obedient children do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Verse 16, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And the more I studied, the more I became convinced that that's Peter's point. Now the context helps us because we live in an increasingly hostile world and what he was doing was he was showing the believers this is how you live holy this is what it looks like this is how you interact with this hostile world around you and their lives were hard the government was not a friend of these believers at that time many of them were slaves and they had Wicked masters that made their lives hard. Many of them had bad marriages that made their life hard. Many of them were subjected to injustice and unfairness and it made their life hard. But Peter, beginning in chapter 2, wanted to make it clear that even with all of those difficulties, holiness is possible. And in fact, it's imperative for our witness. So for example... Chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Verse 12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, 
so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. I recently taught on this on a Sunday night. You can go back and listen to it. But the point is this. Our lives matter to God, not just for our personal holiness, but we are evangelists with our lives. This hostile world that hates us and that slanders us and accuses us of things is watching us And if our behavior is excellent, which is just another way of saying if our behavior is holy, some in that hostile world around us will see and perhaps come to faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. It's still the preaching of the gospel, but our lives make hearing the gospel even more possible for some people. God will use us to convict them. So no matter the circumstances, be it government hostility, submit to the government, being a difficult workplace, submit to your masters, in our context, submit to your boss. On and on it goes. We can be a light in darkness and we can live in such a way that unbelievers, even though they hate us, even though they accuse us of things, those accusations will be false. And we have to keep doing the right thing even if it doesn't pay immediate dividends, even if our lives are hard, even if doing so causes us to be treated unfairly and unjustly. We keep pressing on. One of the things that jumps out as we've studied this over the years is that Peter seems to have in his mind that the human reaction naturally is that's not fair. Since you're mistreating me, My only reaction is to mistreat you in return. You push me, I push you. And Peter is trying to steer us away from that sinful reaction. He wants us to do what Jesus said. Verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That theme runs throughout the Bible as believers. In fact, if you come back tonight, I'm preaching on that very thing. That we have a duty to act differently than the world around us. We don't get to get down in the gutter, so to speak, and fight on their terms. We are ambassadors of the Lord. And if we suffer mistreatment, even though we've done the right thing, even though we're doing all the right things and we suffer, Peter's message to us is that's okay. 1 Peter 3, verse 17, For it's better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. The ultimate point of what Peter was saying in chapter 3 is that God can bring good out of injustice. Jesus wins, so we win. Whatever hardships in between, Jesus wins, we're on his side. But chapter 4 continues the idea of these trials and tribulations, but it never gets away from the theme of holiness. So the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore... Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men but for the will of God. It's that recurring theme over and over and I think it's a recognition that when we're suffering we get tired and we get weak. 
When life is hard, you've experienced it. When life is relentless, when life just seems to not stop raining, and when you think the rain has stopped, you only realize it was the hail started falling. And it gets worse and worse. Our flesh can rise up and say, well, I've got to take care of this myself. And Peter's message is, no, you don't. You keep resisting the flesh. And he also calls us as the church in the midst of all of these things to help one another in these heavy, heavy burdens. So, for example, and we spent a lot of time on this, but in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 7, The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's a call to selfless, holy living, not just keeping our behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles, which is an ever-present requirement, but helping one another carry our burdens, knowing that each one of us at any moment of time is weak. Each one of us at any moment in time is suffering more than the other. We come alongside one another. We serve one another. If you heard this morning my announcement in the first service about the Sunday school classes, we spent a lot more time than we normally would being so specific. Why? Because the only way for people to get this hospitality and the serving and all of that is to be connected more than you can do on a Sunday morning in the main sanctuary. We really believe Sunday school classes and small groups are vital because that's where we can connect. That's where we can find out people's needs. Over the years in this class, I found out prayer needs that I never heard in the church office. Just sitting in the pews, talking to one another, and we can't do that anymore. We don't have pews. But you know what I mean. The, the same basic point That's why prayer will always be a part of this class because it's so critical for us to live out these things. We have to be interacting on a more personal basis. But even in the midst of that, suffering will come. Part of what Peter's trying to convey in his letter that we've been largely immune to in America, at least in my lifetime, but the immunity is coming to an end, is that even when you're doing the right thing, you can suffer. We don't celebrate suffering caused by our sin, but if we suffer for doing the right thing, if we're persecuted for doing the right thing, we shouldn't shake our fist at God. We should thank the Lord that we get the opportunity to model Christ. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. I'll pause for just a second because what I see in my own heart and perhaps some of you see is a lot of what we do is spend our time trying to avoid the fiery ordeal. I think that's one of the reasons why believers get really frustrated with politics and I get it my whole adult life since I became saved politics has frustrated me 
But what happens is we want to stave off what we see is coming. And yet in some respects, God may be merciful and allow that to occur, but we may just be brought into the fiery ordeal. And if we are, we don't lament and complain, we accept that we're there. Comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. But at the end of chapter 4, even though at the time I taught it, there were some references that could see, seem confusing, really what was being focused on is the fact of this. Even in the midst of our hardships, the ultimate final judgment on sinners doesn't touch us. We're safe. Our souls are being cared for by the God who loved us enough to save us. We're okay. He alludes to the fact that hardships touch believers, but ultimately we shouldn't get too discouraged by the hardships because not only are they a blessing, at the end of the day they don't touch our souls. Verse 17 to 19, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I don't know of a more important call for us as believers right now because I really do believe in my lifetime there'll be more suffering. I don't think we're close to suffering like the brothers and sisters that I know in Nigeria or in Central America or in some other places. But given the relative peace and ease with which we've worshipped the Lord throughout most of our adult lives, any encroachment is going to feel jarring and it's going to be unnerving. But as believers, we don't need to despair. Does that mean we can't work to make society better? Of course not. What it means is if our efforts fail, we don't give up. Because we have hope. None of that can t- touch us. Our souls are in the hands of a faithful creator. So we keep pressing on. And that brings us to chapter 5. That was a very, very brief summary, as I mentioned before, because I believe every message that I just summarized, all 70 of those messages, are available online on the church website. I trust that they're there, because I won't listen to myself talk. But I see them. I know they're there. I can't stand the sound of my own voice, so I don't ever go back and listen to what I've done. But if you want to see any of those passages taught more clearly, if you want to see more depth, again, some of them I've recently taught on Sunday night, particularly going back into chapter 1, and I'm still in chapter 2. But when you get to chapter 5, the first word is, therefore. Therefore. So part of why I 
took the time to do what I did today is because everything I just said is the therefore. That's it. And then if you look at verse 5, therefore, and we begin those four verses. That's the big picture. The hardship, the persecution, the injustice, the unfairness, and yet in the midst of it, Peter's words to the believers is, you still have hope, your eternity is secure, and for now, be holy as God is holy. And if things get tough, you don't have the excuse of saying, well, I'm just going to give in to my flesh for a while. No, you keep pressing on. You be holy as God is holy. Don't spend your energy worrying about all the other things and fighting to avoid things. Spend your energy living holy no matter what. Be an example to those who mistreat you. Be an example to those who speak badly about you. Maybe your life will be an evangelistic tool that helps win them to Christ one day. Now all this is hard teaching. The book is hard. It's easy to understand for the most part. What's said in 1 Peter is nothing unique. It's said through the rest of Scripture. But it's hard when we're being treated badly not to respond in kind. You learn that as a kid. You don't have to teach toddlers to pay back. Somebody pushes a toddler or grabs a toy, what do they do? They grab back. That never goes away. That's still our fleshly response. But it's possible that we can live in a hostile world, much more hostile than anything we can even imagine, and still keep our testimony. Still not come to blows. Still not resort to fighting others. But it's possible. Now, chapter 5 begins, and it's not teaching anything different, and it's the summation and the culmination of the book... But at the beginning verses, and what I started to introduce in a couple of lessons in February, and as I said, the last lesson on March 8th, was the idea that God gives each of us plenty of tools to enable us to do this. If you ever do projects or you do work, and you have that tendency like I do, where you make trip after trip to Lowe's or Home Depot. Oh, I, don't, I needed that. Oh, I didn't know I need, And it's just over and over. In Christ, you don't have to do that. You've got the tools already. You do. You've got your Bible, which has all the Word of God. If you know Christ, you've got the Spirit of God dwelling within you. You've got the church and you've got fellow believers to come alongside you and help. But the beginning of chapter 5 is really talking about another tool that God has given you to enable you to do everything He's calling you to do. That resource is the elders of your church. The pastor is called by God to lead his people. Peter knows that God's children need help. And one of the means that God has provided in the local church are the men called to teach and equip and shepherd you. Verses 1 to 4 are dealing with that very thing. 
it's a challenge because as one of your elders, I realize we are imperfect. We make mistakes. There are 12 of us, which helps us minimize our mistakes because we require unanimity, but it's possible for us to miss things. We strive not to, but we do. And it pains us when we realize people are hurt because of what we've done or not done. By the same token, there are times where God has just called us to do things that are hard and we have to do them anyway. But when we get to chapter 5, what we see are the tools you could use to hold us accountable in essence. Verses that speak to me and I go to because it is talking about the responsibility and role of every elder of every church. In essence, you can take verses 1 to 4 and hold them up to your elders and see where we fall short. And, and I can assure you, we're prideful men, just like most people are prideful, but if people bring to us areas where we've fallen short, we accept it. We've asked for forgiveness. We've done Many good things, but we've dropped the ball. And chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, really show you a grid to look for, and it's what I use even to evaluate myself. Now, we have to be careful the limitations of chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, because it's dealing with people who are already elders. It's not saying, what are the qualifications of an elder? For that, there's a couple of places you could go to. For example, and I'll read this. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Paul giving instructions to young Timothy of the kind of people that he should appoint to church leadership. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil? And he must have a good reputation with those outside of the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. That's a high standard. I won't read it right now for time's sake, but if you were to go to Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, Paul, in writing to a different man, in essence gave a synonymous list, some different words, but it's the same basic idea. So if you wanted to see what is the inherent character or things like that of the people that should be elders, I would send you probably to those verses. In fact, it would do well for many churches in America to go and read those verses. Because it's probably some of your own experiences, certainly it's mine, that churches don't pick leaders based on those standards. Sometimes it's based on which people give the most money. Put them on the elder board. They give a lot of money. That can't happen at Lakeside because none of your pastors know how much anybody gives. By design. We don't want to be a respecter of persons and we're human. If we saw who gave what, as much as we don't want to, we might be tempted, so we remove the temptation. We don't know. 
But a lot of churches do know. And they elevate people like that. Could be just a personality. Or a friendliness. Boy, that's a great person. They're fun to be around. Or longevity. Well, they've been here since the church was founded. They must be an elder. No, none of that. But that wasn't ultimately Peter's point. He's dealing with people that are already there. They're in the role. Like your elders are. And while everything that he says touches on character and it implicates character, it really is more of the function of the office of carrying out the work of the ministry. So I'm going to read this section. Again, today I'm just setting the table. But I'm going to read these verses. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So I'm going to do a quick, quick summary, even now, of what I've already said on these verses. So I'm going to give you the outline Some of you, if you take notes, you might already have some of this. And this is a very brief summary, but what I want to be able to do is jump more into the substance of the stuff we haven't covered starting next week. But I categorize this entire study as principles of effective church leadership. Principles of effective church leadership. And the first principle was this. Multiple Elders. Multiple elders. Peter very clearly used a plural form of elders. And when I originally taught this, and again, I could go back and do that, but I'm just going to give you the overview. When I originally taught this, I showed you multiple passages where it talks about elders in the Jerusalem church, plural. Paul talking about appointing elders in each city, plural. Now, of course, there can be a time in the life of a church where you have one elder, which normally is when it was founded. If you go and plant a church somewhere, you can't expect that the Lord will drop five or six fully qualified men out of the sky to lead. But if you look at missionaries who are focused on the right aspects of church planting, their first priority once the church is up and running is identifying godly men and training them. From time to time I go on trips. I've been to Central America a lot of times, gone to Nigeria a couple of times. What I do there is teaching pastors. Teaching people who are being trained to be pastors. That I'm not a church planner, but I can help build up the leaders. And the idea of the New Testament seems to be that when you have multiple elders, they balance one another. If you pulled apart the 12 personalities of our current elders, you'd realize we're not all the same. We're just not. We have different interests. 
We have different ideas on any particular topic. Our views aren't always the same, and yet the Lord uses that to keep us in balance. We don't go to the extremes of anyone because we require unanimity. The point is, I think that's how multiple elders is supposed to function. First church I was saved in, and I'm thankful for the church. I think it's still a good church, but it didn't have that format. The pastor was the boss. If you've been in Baptist churches, that's not an uncommon format. And I can understand that. If I'm the boss, I like that position. But it's not necessarily best for the church because God's called a multitude of people. So, so my first point was an effective church leadership requires more than one person being the boss telling everybody else what's to do. It's multiple elders. We believe that's what's taught in First Peter, but it's also what's taught in all of Scripture. The second principle of effective church leadership was this, humble leadership. Humble leadership. And that came from how Peter identified himself. If you go back to the very beginning of the book, and you don't have to, he introduced himself as an apostle. Now for us, we're so used to those words, it doesn't mean much, but these were the people that walked with Jesus. They were personally appointed by him. That was a powerful, powerful statement. If you said, I'm an apostle, people listened. We're older in this group, so you remember the old E.F. Hutton commercials. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Am I the, I'm not the only one that remembers that. Um, you can actually find it on YouTube, because I was talking to some young people, and they didn't know what I was talking about. But the point is this. When an apostle spoke, it had extra authority. But when Peter was talking to these fellow elders, look how he identified himself. Not, I'm the apostle, so you do what I say, but he says, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. But it wasn't just that he witnessed it. If you remember, Peter's greatest failure occurred when Christ was suffering. Because the man who stood beside Christ and said, Lord, if all of these people turn away, I'll never turn away, denied him three times. And he was humiliated. And yet as he's calling these other believers, he's not only humbling himself and saying, I'm what you are. I have my church. I do the same thing. But he's not running away from the moment of his greatest failure. He's embracing it. He understands it. So the principle of humble leadership just comes from Peter's own example. The third point, third principle of effective church leadership is focused leaders. Focused leaders. And it comes from the simple phrase, shepherd the flock of God among you. And the reality is, someone like me has a very limited responsibility. My responsibility is lakeside. Every church everywhere is God's, but I'm not called to serve every church everywhere. I'm here. This is the only place where I'm responsible for tending the sheep that God has brought together here. It's very easy, and I've been around for a long time and Lakeside is the smallest church I've been a member of since I've been saved. So I've been a part of some mega churches. But in the context of things, 
my focus is supposed to be on shepherding you. The word shepherding is very expressive and certainly throughout Scripture we know over and over the image of the flock of God and Jesus is the chief shepherd and this imagery of sheep that need help. Again, that's offensive to the American sensibilities because we're, we're able, we can stand on our own but God says otherwise. So, so we need to be shepherded but the pastors of your church are called to be the pastors of your church. There have been many times over the years where people have asked me questions about other churches and as much as I can, I try and avoid answering it. Why? Because I'm not accountable for that church. Certainly, if somebody asked me doctrinally, I would tell you what's the truth. I want to protect Lakeside, so if I heard something in another church, I might mention it. But in general, those pastors of those other churches have to shepherd that flock. I have to be focused here. This has to be my priority I was just talking to somebody earlier and they were asking me, did I know about another church locally? And, and I was very candid with them. I said, no, I don't know anything good or bad. I said, I've got tunnel vision. I really do. I, I mean, I don't see much more than here. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong. Do I, am I aware of what's going on in Christendom? Of course, but only to the extent that I need to protect the flock here from error that creeps in. But the leaders of a church are supposed to be focused. God brings sheep to Lakeside. As I mentioned at the time, part of the reason why we brought Pastor Jack on board is because we realized we needed help keeping track of the sheep here. We're only a church of around 500 people, but if you ever try and keep track of 500 people, it's hard. That's why I'm so thankful for some of you that are serving in the shepherding ministry. It's a great help to us, but the point is this. Effective church leadership is focused. The fourth principle is willing elders. Willing elders. And that comes from this phrase, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily. No church leader should feel like they were drafted and they have no choice. Part of the reason where I read from 1 Timothy is he has that phraseology, if any man aspires to the office of overseer. If God has not put in a man's heart a desire to lead, you shouldn't try and force him to lead. I've had a lot of young men over the years when I was in seminary, I worked with college Bible study, I worked with young men and I would have young men ask me about things First thing I'd ask them, do you want to do it? I I realize you're smart and you know more Greek than I do and you're talented and you're a good speaker, but do you want to be a pastor? I never tried to convince somebody, well, you've got so much talent, you should be. I don't. That's God's work. They don't need to serve under compulsion as though they feel like they're chained to a church and that it's some kind of sentence or condemnation. The elders that are leading you should want to be the elders that are leading you. They should desire that. They should want to serve. I didn't run away from God's call, but I was very slow to become a pastor. Because I didn't trust myself. I felt like God had gifted me 
and perhaps I could do these things, but I was concerned I want to be able to voluntarily with all my heart say I'm committed. You guys know I was a lawyer. That's what I did. Still remember my interview with the elders here. I said, I think I'm called to do this, but I've never done it. I don't know. I'm just a lawyer. That's all I know how to do. But I was willing because God put that desire in my heart. It's not me patting myself on the back. It's that God planted in me a desire such that I didn't have to be dragged away from a career that I actually enjoyed. I tell people, I actually like being a lawyer. I wasn't running from it. I enjoyed it. But I willingly do this because it's my desire. God gave me that. And then the last principle and I apologize, we're, I'm just trying to get through this today to get us to the point where we can jump back in next week. And I may do a little review next week just to bring us up to speed. But the last thing I covered on March 8th of 2020, before the world came to an end, was a fifth principle of effective leadership. And it is selfless elders. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. It's critical that the leaders of the church not be doing it for themselves. It's supposed to be according to the will of God. And that idea of not for sort of gain just means the pastorate, being an elder, shouldn't be a means to line your pockets. I remember when I was living in Fresno and I was preparing to go to seminary and I went and talked to the pastor of the church. He since passed away, went home to be with the Lord, but he and I weren't close, but we knew each other. He had been a lawyer before he had become a pastor. And I remember going to his office, the only time I was ever in his office, and, and he said that there's three things you've got to look out for. And one of them was sexual temptation, but the other two were money and pride. He said every pastor runs up against that. And I think that's what Peter is alluding to here. The point is, it's not your elder's church, it's the Lord's church. I think Pastor Steve models this as well as anybody I've ever seen. You realize May of next year, he will have been the pastor at Lakeside for 40 years. He was a very young man when he went from being the interim pastor to you're it, it's your ball, come in the game. And over that time, he hasn't done anything differently. And yet, when you walk around Lakeside, we certainly identify with him, but he hasn't built a monument to himself. You know, what was interesting to me, when I came here on a visit, this was back in, I think, February of 2007, I had talked to Steve on the phone. Uh, he had been given my name. I was in California. We flew back here, and we just spent a weekend here. Came in on a Friday and I was offered a job Sunday night. But one of the things that struck me was I knew Steve had been here forever. And he was friends with you know, Phil Johnson who 
was in my sphere. He's a big name at Grace Community Church. And I knew Steve was friends with John MacArthur, who he's a big name around the world. But I came to Lakeside, and I'm driving down Sunset Point, and I was told there's a steeple. If you remember, there used to be a steeple. Uh, got messed up by lightning, and that's the end of that, and it's all gone. But I came there, and I remember I met Jack first. Jack was still here. He was getting ready to go to Orlando. I met Jack first, and he showed Debbie and I around. And then at some point, I saw where Steve studies. And I was shocked. Because it was just like a little cubby hole. Not even a nice desk. It's like something somebody built into a wall. Rickety furniture. Nothing nice. Old carpet. Old everything. Old wood paneling that used to cover this church. It was still there in his office. Here's, here's the point. As I realized, he wasn't building an empire for himself. Here's a humble guy after all those years. He was still working in not much more than a closet and he was okay with it. That's an example of somebody who's serving according to the will of God, not for sordid gain. You know, Stephen and Michelle haven't gotten rich here. Now again, this doesn't suggest that pastors shouldn't be compensated. I'm paid by the church now. Probably more than other people I can say I'm not in it for the money because my background would say that, but still, we've got to be careful. At Lakeside, there's a reason pastors don't have any say in how much we get paid. There's a committee separate from us. Why? Because we could be tempted because we're human. I'll vote for you for this percent. If you vote for me for the... We don't want any of that. America is filled with wealthy pastors. It's a bizarre thing. Flying around in private jets, being treated like royalty because they have figured out how to enrich themselves from the pockets of God's children. That's horrible. Leaders should be selfless. Not in it for themselves. Not in it for what it gets for them. Not in it for their name. Not trying to be famous. But they're doing it because God called them. And they're just shepherding the flock that God's given them. That brings us to next Sunday. So I gave a very, very brief summary that was actually two full messages and part of a third that I just summarized of 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4. to What's interesting is I didn't know if I was going to have time to do that, so I didn't put any of that in my notes, but I still remember because I read it again and I know what was there. I'm excited to finish this section. Got two more points. Got them in my notes, but I'll have to ask you to come back next week because I'm going to keep them secret until then. And then we'll move on through the rest of this book and we'll get there. Let me close our time with prayer and we'll be done today. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the love you've shown us. I thank you for this class, Lord, the the brothers and sisters that I have had the privilege of uh, being a part of for so many years. I pray that you'll continue to strengthen us. We pray that as we continue our study of 1 Peter, Lord, that you'll help us to be holy as you are holy. That, that's our greatest desire. And I pray that as we study these words on a week-by-week basis, that not only will we grow in our knowledge of your word, but we'll grow in our love for one another as we continue to rub shoulders and be a part of one another's lives. Lord, we love you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.